Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Well, welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. My name is Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Today, we are really excited to have some wonderful guests, Mr. John Brown and Mr. Josh Patrick. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today? Great. How about yourself? Wonderful. Wonderful. Great we, uh, Michael. Thanks. Of course. Uh, very excited. We love this concept of talking about advanced exit planning for the family business. Um, there's a, a ton that we're going to cover today. So hold on to your hats. We've got Josh and John here to, to guide us through this conversation. Uh, in order to get us started, John, why don't you, you know, dive in and tell us about your journey. How did you end up in, uh, you know, the business exit planning industry to begin with. And if I, I, I would, I would venture to guess that uh, business exit planning wasn't even a thing 30 years ago. It, it probably was not, at least I had never heard of it. So I began my professional life as an attorney, uh, started my own law firm in Denver, Colorado, co-founded it with my partner with whom I had lunch with earlier this week, by the way. Um, and that was in 1977. So I started life out as um, really an estate planning attorney back when estate planning was very different from what it was. But I, but I, I liked working with business owners. I come from a family of business owners, just like our esteemed Josh Patrick. Uh, so I always understood the challenges business owners had, the challenges my father had when he sold his business incredibly unsuccessfully, uh, which again is no surprise. So I always had this interest. And uh, the quick story is one day I was representing two, two brothers who owned a very successful construction company. This was back in the mid 1980s. And I'd done their estate plans for them. And, and they said, hey, John, we wanna meet with you to go over some business issues. Can you meet with us? And I thought, sure, I can do that. I was doing a little bit of buy-sell work and things like that. Um, so I sat down with them. I said, how can I help you guys? guys? And they said, you know what? We want to sell our business. We are totally burned out. And so I thought for a second, gosh, this is new. So I thought, well, tell me, uh, when do you guys want to leave? And they said, Friday. <laughs> and they were dead serious. So that led me on a course of just thinking about this issue. There's probably a lot of owners who are in that same scenario. They have, they're smart business owners, but they have no idea of how to successfully exit their business. So that's really what started me on this whole business exit planning uh, 
I guess, path that I'm still now living every day. Great. Well, welcome. I appreciate you joining us. Josh, why don't you yeah. uh, tell us your journey and how did you end up uh, getting to where you are today? Well, I was uh, 23 years old. I graduated from college. Not and... that story. Not that story. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to tell you how I got in the family business. It was an easier way to go from I'm where just, I was I'm today. Te I'm teasing. For those of you who don't know, Josh and I know each, have known each other for years and uh, I have a lot of respect for him. I had to give a little rib in there. So. Well, uh, I'll, I'll follow you, Michael, because I have known him for years as well. So we'll just we'll just be on Josh for this entire podcast. So, so I'm between you two, so I'm going to be ping pong back and forth. I can see. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I went into the family business because it was a path of least resistance, and that happens more often than you would be uh, than not. I would think with family businesses, uh, ended up leaving my father, bought a small piece of his business. Grew it to 90 employees. After 20 years, I realized the food service and vending business was a terrible place to be and sold it. And I looked around and said, what's next? I joined a national life insurance company, was there for a year and a half till I realized that, you know, life insurance companies want you to sell life insurance. And my specialty was working with private business owners. And frankly, they wanted a whole lot more than that. So we opened our own wealth management firm. Um, that kind of morphed into helping people create what I call a sustainable business, economically and personally sustainable business. Uh, a piece of that is exit planning, because at some point someone's going to leave their business. And it was 1997, 98, something like that. John had just written his book. I ran across it in the Barnes and Noble. I was with an organization called Partners Financial and talked to a guy named Harry McCabe and said, Harry, you got to get this guy in to speak. <laughs> and John came in and spoke, and I don't know, five or six of us went to, I think, his third or fourth boot camp he did for exit planning. Yeah, probably. Um, and, you know, since then, John and I have stayed in touch. Uh, we talk about exit planning a lot. We don't do a lot of it because what we find is when we get someone ready to exit their business, they don't want to because they're having too much fun and making too much money. So um, exit planning is certainly a piece but it's a piece that happens further down the road than most people think it does. Great. So let's, let's dive right into that. And John, why don't you kind of tee this off a little bit? Just what is exit planning? How do you define exit planning you know, today? And why does it matter? So first of all, I generally agree with what Josh just said. Uh, owners don't really want to start exit planning right away. They don't understand what it means, but that's also not what most exit planners, at least the exit planners we train do. They don't do an entire exit plan right away. So an exit planning is just helping an owner be able to exit her business on her terms, whatever that is with money to whom they want to transfer it to when they want to exit and a variety of other aspirational goals. So it's, we have a process that we've developed and refined over 25 years. We have a lot of tools that advisors use. So we're a membership-based organization. We support other advisors, lawyers, CPAs, financial planners, et cetera. And we give them, we give them some training, but we provide them with tools to actually accomplish that. It might be a, a planning 
tool that creates plans. It might be a specific tool that accomplishes something that an owner wants to accomplish. So exit planning is almost a misnomer, even though our website is exitplanning.com. We're usually we're focusing on first understanding the challenges an owner has, different challenges for different owners. You guys see the same thing as I do, and then addressing that challenge. And once that's done, we might move on to the next challenge. We might move on into more of a planning role with the owner. And I'll shut up in just a second. What we find is with almost all business owners, it's important to start with understanding first, what are the owner's goals and aspirations and refine those. Secondly, what are the resources available today for that owner to achieve his or her goals? And then lastly, is there a gap between the resources the owner has and what the owner is going to need in order to exit on her terms? We need to do that whether we're doing a buy-sell agreement, whether we're doing an employment agreement for a key employee, whatever. If we don't start with understanding what the owner wants and needs and has, we're not going to do a good job for the business owner. Agreed. You know, we, we call that, Michael, <clears throat> scratching the itch. Meaning that if you don't deal with what the business owner has on their mind, you never get a chance to talk about the important stuff that you, they really should be thinking about. So, um, in, as John just told, we actually have a process we call the alignment conversation, which basically is the first thing we do when we talk to a person is, where are you now? Where do you want to be in the future? What's the gap between the two? And what's the value of filling that gap? And if they decide they want some help, then we just say, hey, would you like some help? And they say yes or no. If they say yes, we say, would you like us to help you? And that's a very complicated sales process. Yeah, and it's very, I mean, this is every planning process. If you're planning to build an automobile, you're going to probably you need to go through this first stage. What does the automobile driver want, right? What does he have and so on? So it's foundational in any type of professional practice that deals with people who want to accomplish something, some right. type of a planning goal. And that is, you, Josh, you may have a better view of this than I do. Uh, most advisors don't represent their clients that way. They don't start out there. If you're an insurance advisor, you're going to sell insurance. If you're a financial planner, you're going to get assets under management. If you're an estate planning attorney, you're going to do an estate plan and so on. We never bring up what is most concerning to a business owner. And that's what we try to do at Exaplan differently than the rest of the advisor world. Love it. Yeah, and, and that makes an awful lot of sense. I, two things pop into my head is, you know, obviously Josh and I get along really well. John, we just met, but we, I, it, already kindred spirits because um, when we, you know, put together wealth plans for clients, we, in, in 2019, our team won the Plan Plus um, Global Financial Planning Competition. Wow. And the, the, I asked them, you know, I said, why... You know, you, you've seen plans for, for years. What, why did we win? And they said, number one, you know, it was because when you look at your plan, you didn't sell anything. You solved their problems. It was all about them. And that just really 
makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Um, yeah. It's the old, if all you have is a hammer. Then every, yeah, everything's a nail. When, yeah. When, and the, when, when, I, when I own my vending company, I would have people walk in my office on a regular basis and pitch me whatever they pitched. And more often than not, in fact, I would say about 95% of the time, they came in with a solution looking for a problem. Right, right. And <clears throat> when I sold my business, my, my primary um, guiding principle I left was I'm not going to do that. Smart. And John, you said one other thing that I just want to hit on. I think, or no, uh, Josh, you might have said, I don't remember the, the alignment conversation. Just, you don't know this, but over the last three months, I've interviewed probably close to 20, 25 family business members. And, and the, the interview process was all about, you know, <laughs> what were, what are the biggest pains that you're experiencing as a family owned business? And to a T, the number one biggest problem that they faced was a lack of alignment among family members. It causes the friction. It causes the family fires. It's, it was everything to them. And so, you know, spending the time to have that, as you call it, the alignment conversation um, and, you know, doing that not just for the owner, but for all owners and all family members, that's one of the things that we've, you know, started to bring to the table that has really made a giant difference for people. So I spot on with, you know, with, with the, your thinking there. Um, I, I want to go into, you, you talked about identifying some of the challenges for owners, John. Josh, would you mind, you know, you know, as you're going through that alignment conversation, what are some of the challenges that business owners, especially family-owned businesses, start to identify before you, you know, take them through any type of process? What's identified in this alignment conversation? Well, they generally don't have an idea of what they want to accomplish. That's the first thing. I mean, they just, people, people-owned businesses tend to go to work. They deal with whatever's in front of them. They spend 95 to 97% of their time on that stuff. So they really never get enough time to really think strategically around their business. And frankly, exit planning this, and the stuff John teaches and most of the stuff we do is strategically inclined. So the first thing we need to do is find how to get them from three to 5% to five to 10% of their time so they can actually think and act strategically. Um, so we work with them on a little bit of time management. We work with them on getting rid of the $10 per hour jobs that they continue to do. So we start, you know, we might start off saying, here's what I want you to do. For the next two weeks, and you're gonna hate this, for the next two weeks, I want you to write down every 15 minutes what you're doing. And at the end of that two weeks, we're gonna look at everything on there that you could hire somebody else for $25 an hour or less. And we're then gonna have you move all of that off your plate, which means you're gonna to need to learn how to delegate effectively. And it's the hardest skill any business owner ever learns is the <clears> one they screw up almost, well, they screw up 100% of the time the first time they do it. And in my experience, 75 to 90% of business owners give up. They say it doesn't work. Agreed. John, what are some of the other challenges that uh, the business owners, again, because we're the family biz show, especially inside of family businesses, what are some of the other things that pop up? Um, 
you never know when you first start working with an owner what those challenges are. So the first thing that we do is what most of our members do, I should say, is they give the they provide an assessment that they want the owner to take to identify what is most concerning to that owner today. Because usually you have to deal with those before you can move on to more comprehensive planning. Uh, it's the same with a family business owner. It, if your client says, my, my son doesn't talk to me in the business, my daughter's not talking to me because she thinks I'm favoring my son, you know, until you kind of deal with some of these issues that are right in their face, um, it's hard to move into a more reasonable planning scenario. So that's, that's really the first thing we do. Uh, the other thing I would say about family businesses is they have exactly the same problems non-family business owners have, just more of them because they're dealing with family. So you've got an added layer to all of the other challenges and opportunities of closely held business ownership. And that's, and that's probably why we all like working with family-run businesses because there are larger problems, greater problems, more complex problems sometimes, not all the time, and we can help them. And one of the things that's missing for almost every planner I talk to with family businesses, and this is with male-owned, male-run companies, is that the advisors forget to talk to the spouse. <laughs> and if you're not talking to the spouse and including them in the planning, I can almost guarantee it's going to blow up in your face. Because they have an agenda that is usually diametrically opposed to their, other, to their spouse who's running the business. And if we don't deal with that, we're not going to get anything done. Love it. Hey, you'll appreciate this, Josh. We, we started a client advisory board this year. And the very first meeting, one of the spouses of the owner um, chimed up and said, you know, we love the assessment that you send out on an annual basis to check in on, you know, how we're feeling about things and what our objectives are. Um, but you need to create a whole new one because everything on the business is focused on the owner, not on the spouse. And you're not asking me the right questions that are important to me. So Josh, that's huge. We always, you know, thought that we, we would do that verbally, but they actually said, you know, we, we wanted a list of questions put right in front of us so that we can have the time to think about it, not just do it while we're on the, you know, on the spot with you. Um, so hugely important. And uh, that was echoed on all, you know, all of the spouses, whether it was male or female, didn't matter. It's if you're not in the business, you don't know all the different pieces and you don't always know what to be asking. So great point. John, uh, you started doing this 25 years ago plus. What's changed, you know, over that period of time? And how did you, you know, when we're talking about a family business who, who may want to keep that legacy going, why is this stuff, you know, why is it important for them as well? Well, I don't think, you know, the actual process has changed. I think there's more awareness of the need to do planning work with family-run businesses in the advisor community. I think that's, there's just more general awareness of that need. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that there's a lot more planning work that's effective is going on. Because I think most advisors, which is natural, they tend to know their profession well. Working with family-run businesses is not something that is taught as a major area by in any of the professions, really. It's something that I'm guessing Michael and Josh and I have all learned by experience, which by definition means we've made a lot of mistakes along the way and hopefully we've learned from them. So I don't think that has changed. I think at least what we've created is a lot more tools for advisors to use to understand how to represent owners, to understand how to communicate with all of the parties in interest. And again, obviously it's the other spouse, but it might be all of the children. It might be the spouses of all of the other children. It might be the key employees who are wondering what in the heck is going on with the transition planning, if any, in this family run business, and what is my future in this company? So it's the perspective has broadened, I would say, at least with our members over the last 20 or 25 years to encompass a lot more non-technical, non-legal issues and challenges. And can I, um, can I, can I um, add on to that for a second? Only if you agree with me, Josh. Well, I happen to agree with you because we fought <laughs> about this for 20 years before you finally said, gee, there's more than technical. <laughs> <laughs> But there's another piece here, which um, Susan Bradley brings into the party, which is how to manage the transitions. And if we don't manage transitions well, we are not going to get the job done. I mean, if you talk to a third party M&A person, they're going to tell you that a bunch of their deals blow up because they get to the letter of intent or a sales agreement. And the owner looks over the ledge, doesn't see anything that's a good future viable option for them and they pull it from them. Now, the thing about transitions is we know, you know, there's major transitions we all know about. We're gonna retire, we sell a business, we get divorced, we lose a spouse. Those are major transitions that happen in your life. But in the business owner's life, they're constantly going through these minor transitions, which still have the four stages. If I wanna get you to go from being a control freak where you do everything yourself, to becoming operationally irrelevant, where you have nothing to do with the day-to-day -day operations of your business, you're going to have to go through several major transitions to get there. And we as advisors are in a great position to help people manage those transitions. So learning what they are, how they affect people, and understanding that when someone's going through a major transition, they're under pressure, their IQ drops, and their cognitive ability goes to nothing. We have to sort of walk them in a very slow pace and not big paces. Yeah. yeah. You know, Josh, I think we just talked about this not too long ago, maybe last week or so. Um, we poll business owners every other year, typically, although we are going to be skipping a year because of the pandemic. Um, but our last poll, we asked the question about when you wanted to exit the business, business owner it was a poll to business owners. And what does that mean? Well, the upshot was 80% of all owners would like to exit their business within 10 years. And that's been historically almost the same for the last 25 years. But what is different, or maybe we ask the question differently, is 25% of owners want to leave their business 
but they don't want to sell it. They want to keep it. And that is something that has simply been unrecognized by the professional community um, by and large. And what makes me think of it, Michael, is that that's very typical in family-run businesses. There's not necessarily mom and dad selling their entire interest and letting the kids run it. It's often a gradual ownership transition over time with the usually the business active parent holding on to something, maybe until they die. And I don't know if that's something you've seen, Michael or, and Josh, but that's common. It's relatively common. That yeah. least- you know, I, I, would, I would tend to agree. You know, it's, um, it's funny. Josh came to you, John, through your organization. I ended up because of Lincoln in another exit, you know, organization. Um, and we have used something called the Business Exit Readiness Index. And after a thousand or 1200 business owners have taken that, that it, it always comes back about 84, 85% say they want to stay in the business, even if they're financially ready to go out, they're just mentally, they're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And it's, and so you're right, you're spot on that, you know, it's surprising, you know, that 10 years I want to be out five, you know, they, they keep talking about the tsunami of, you know, transitions happening, but that's not really the case, is it? Exactly. Yeah, it's the, the tsunami is going to finally occur because these owners are dying. Which goes yeah. <laughs> which goes back to what you said in the beginning, you know, as we were talking about this is, you know, exit planning, we all will exit our business someday. The question is, do you do it on your terms and at your it, with your business at the top of where it's of its game, or do you do it based on, you know, happenstance or just because we died at our desk? Right. Um, that's great. Josh, you know, talk about, you know, we think of exit planning and, and exit planning kind of has a, a negative connotation to it because I'm leaving, you know, the business or, and, and that's probably one of the reasons why some owners kind of push back against exit planning, but there's a lot more to exit planning. And you started to talk about it. Matter of fact, you started a whole nother, you know, website and, and company called the, what, uh, the sustainable, the sustainable business. And, and that's really what a part of exit planning really is, isn't it? Well, the, the sustainable, if you create a sustainable business, you're actually by mistake, doing an exit plan. Because when you create a sustainable business, a personally and economically sustainable business, you've covered the four areas of business sustainability, filled the what we call the four buckets of profit. That now makes your business sale ready because you're do, you've done all the things that are necessary that make your business attractive to a buyer. Now you're doing that for you, you're not doing it for a buyer. The side effect is it's now for a buyer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so <clears throat> first you get a sustainable business. That sustainable business, once you reach there, becomes a sale-ready company. Well, let me talk about that for a second because I learned this almost 20 years ago. I had a client, walked into his office. I asked him when he wanted to leave his business. That's what he called me about. He said yesterday, which was like a normal thing to hear. And I said, well, we really need to do some things to fix your business before we sell it. 
So we did those things. It took us three years to get the business ready for a sale, which was we made the business economically and personally sustainable for him. I went back to him. I said, Brian, okay, we're ready to get an M&A person. You want can we can we start that process? And he looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, why would I ever want to sell my business? I'm making too much money. I'm having too much fun. I hardly have to come in here at all. So Thanks. what I learned at that point is business owners don't want to leave their business. They want to change their relationship to the business. Yeah. That move from owner dependent to self-operating, right? <clears throat> yeah. They want to create a, they want, they want to go from buying a job to creating a business. Yeah. So some of the tools, John, through the years that you've created, that you've created and, and Josh, that you, you know, you have created, I would imagine that those are the, the same kinds of things that we've been working on to help business owners, you know, to do just that. And that exercise that you talked about in the beginning, Josh, is just brilliant. Every 15 minutes, write down what you're doing and find out what you can delegate to, to somebody else at, you know, much less that cost per hour than what you're, you know, what, what the owner is, is worth, right? There's probably several other tools that you guys teach business owners to start thinking like that, correct? What would you say are some of the other quick and easy aha moments for a business owner start to say, ooh, I should have thought about that myself. Yeah, it's, uh, and Josh might be better at answering that than I am because we don't, our organization doesn't deal with business owners. We, de we deal with the advisors who deal with business owners. Sure. Uh, but we, to Josh's point about making the owner or the business independent of the owner, we call that creating transferable value because owners are going to be transferring ownership, maybe not until they pass away. And at that point, we want the business to continue with minimal interruption to its cash flow when the owner's no longer there. That's our definition of transferable value. So what we do is we have in our software recommendations on that our advisors would provide to the owners on things they can do. So for example, and I'd love to get Josh's opinion uh, on this, but the most important characteristic is to have a management team that can operate the business successfully without the owner's involvement. And that can take a lot of work. It means we have to train them, we have to motivate them, we have to keep them. So we'll have recommendations like a non-qualified deferred comp compensation plan, a stock appreciation rights plan, a phantom stock plan, a stock purchase plan, a stock bonus plan. So there's eight or 10 different tools an advisor can recommend to the owner and the owner will select with the owner, with the advisor's input, what is most appropriate for that owner. So we're just trying to, to create that transferable value through these implementation then of these recommendations. And we do that because very few advisors know all of the possible recommendations one can make in the creation of an exit plan. And that's what our, that's, what we provide or try to provide. Great. Josh, anything to add to that? Well, for me, it's around, it's all around systematization. You, um, you know, one of the four things, one of the four drivers of sustainability is if a business is not systematized, it's not transferable because buyers or 
new owners, which includes your children, by the way, don't want you, they want your systems, they want your managers, they want everything else that's in the business. And I put management training or management ability as a systems process. Uh, and I think that businesses, especially private businesses with less than 50 employees, maybe less than 100 employees, they're terrible at systematizing the business. The owner has all the systems in their, in their head. And they've got a bunch of helpers running around, but they've not really ever delegated or developed management that can run on its own. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that these businesses generally don't transfer. You know, it's, it's you know, John, will, I, John was telling me that the vast majority of the transfers that the people in his organization are doing are internal transfers. And one of the reasons they're internal, I mean, internal transfers are a more philosophically and psychologically satisfying than a third party sale. But the other side is a lot of these owners have not created a business that's saleable to a third party. It's only transferable to their kids or their managers because they've created no real value. Yeah, Josh, finally, I can disagree with you. Okay. We're waiting this entire <laughs> podcast to be able to do this. So uh, I was reading along with Josh. In fact, uh, we work with a lot of private equity firms and we ask them, what do you look for in acquiring a business? And the top three items consistently are a management team, that state that's very good. Operating systems that are state of the art to Josh's point, and that's hard to find. And the third one that we haven't really talked about that we probably don't need to is a diversity of the customer base, a broad customer base so that we're not reliant on the small number of, of customers who might be looking to the owner for everything, especially. Um, so that's one thing, but I don't think we don't believe you can transfer a business successfully to insiders unless you have all of the qualities needed for sale to an outside third party. I mean, are you going to transfer the business to people who can't run it? No, you've got to have a management team and so on. So I think that's really all the same. It's just that we have more time, perhaps, to incrementally transfer duties, responsibilities, and so on to the people who are going to remain once the owner leaves. Uh, but other than that, the, the factors are the same. We, we need financial independence one way or the other. But that then, and I'll finally shut up, that's why a lot of owners do want to hold on to some ownership interest. Once they've created this, they want to stay part of it. E even if they're going to be largely inactive, they want to see 25% of the cash flow. Right. So, so one of the reasons, and this is where, um, I don't know if John, you really, I know you've probably thought about this, but the reason that most businesses aren't sold to a third party and have to be an internal transfer, which is especially true in the construction business, where you spend a lot of time, Michael, mm -hmm. is that most businesses have not created a recurring revenue stream or a sales process that looks like it's a recurring revenue stream. Now, when I talk to private equity guys, those three things are certainly on their list. But the other one is a recurring revenue stream that creates a stream of cash flows they can depend on. Yeah. And most business owners are really, really bad at that. They wake up on January 1st and they don't have anything out more than 90 days in business. It goes, it goes to exactly what you were talking about, Josh, is if I'm always working in the business and, and, I, and I'm just doing task after task after task, 
I'm not tackling, you know, as Stephen Covey said, the rocks, right? You know, what are those, what are those big things that are really important to take the business to the next level, like putting an operating stream, you know, an operating system in place or adding new income streams to the business so that that are duplicatable and, and repeatable so that we be, do become more attractive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I um, think that's true, but I think that's also truer of smaller businesses. They that's why they're small for one, is they lack all of that. Larger businesses, you know, let's let's say have a value of $10 million or more, they tend to have a lot of that in place. It doesn't they mean they're ready to exit, but they tend to have learned how to do that. If they don't, they're not going to get to 10 million. Right. Or if they get to 10 million, they're going to blow apart because they don't have the systems and processes yeah. to make it there. Yeah, I think it's a whole different set of issues with businesses that can be sold, but the owner chooses not to. Sure. Yeah, and, and, most, and the truth is most businesses in the United States, I mean, there's, there's only 6 million out of 28 million that have any employees and only 300,000 do more than $5 million in sales and only 150,000 do more than $10 million in sales. So the vast majority of the business in this country are really basically the owners bought a job. And if they want to do better than that, they have to change what they're doing. And we right. know how hard change is. Right. I know that's, that, that's exactly it. And it's, you know, what I've seen with, especially within, you know, family businesses is somebody got good at taking care of a widget whether it's producing something or servicing someone or doing something, they got really good at that piece. And, you know, to your point, John, they, they surround themselves with people that can help support them do more widgets or, or, or provide that service better. They don't always get them to that point where they can do it themselves. To your point on the, on, on the systems and processes, John, uh, Josh, I, I, I would, I, I know I have many, many, you know, that I, I can think of and I can point to where they've, they've surpassed that five, that $10 million range. And I'm really still surprised at, at how often they lack the systems and processes. They have just enough to get that piece done, but not to make that next step to where it's a sustainable business or they're not dependent on the owner at that point. Um, so I, it's funny that, you know, as, as we're talking about this, I'm just, I, you know, I'm, I'm picking up, you know, some of my top three or four clients where they haven't gone through that step. And I keep poking at them and prodding at them to say, you really need to be looking at, do you have, you know, as Jim Collins says, what do you need? Have you identified the right seats? Do you have the right people in those seats? And do you have the right people in the right seats doing the right things, Right. Well, that, that speaks to something that um, I don't think John works on with BEI, but it's something we have is, is absolutely core to us, which is becoming values-led. Say that again, Josh. You're having a values-led business. Yeah. If you don't have a values-led business, your people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They're going to make up their own values. They're going to make up their own culture, what your business is about. It's your job as a CEO to say, here are the values we have, here are the clarifying statements around these values, and here's how they apply to different parts of our business. They're great teaching tools, and they're great tools for, for attracting the right people to your company. 
you know, when, when Jim Collins talked about right person, right seat, right person is all about values. In fact, if you read his books, the first 50 pages of his books are about how to create a values-led company. Mm -hmm. And in his research, he says, and that's the difference maker between the great companies versus the good companies. Yep. Agreed. And we, we look at that, we, you know, those two pieces is the values is what is your core purpose beyond profit? Because, you know, we're all doing stuff, you know, John, you're teaching advisors how to help people, you know, exit their business. And Josh, you're talking about sustainable business and exit planning. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about how do we get the family business aligned, but at the end of the day, what is the, what is their purpose beyond profit? Because, there has to be something bigger that draws. And for like, for me and my team, we sat through a process and, and tried to figure that out. And for us, what we came to is it's, you know, we want to inspire change. And, and now we've, we've defined that. We haven't changed the words, but it's, we want to inspire positive change because you can inspire both positive and negative change. But um, that, you know, everything that we do that when we're, when we're meeting with business owners, we're asking them to change and it wouldn't matter for us. We do it through wealth management and, you know, exit planning and, you know, putting systems and processes in place for the business to help, you know, grow the business value. That's how we do it. And we make people uncomfortable. So we have to inspire that level of change, but we could also do that if we were in the schools. You know, if, we, if I was a college professor, professor or whatever business it was, and you know, one of our, you know, clients, their, uh, their core purpose is um, making good things happen. And it's really interesting as you look at the different businesses that they've acquired and they've run through the years, um, they don't, some of them don't even look you know, they're not even in the same industry. They just totally went another place. And they're like, yeah, but we're really still making good things happen. And that's really what matters to us. It's not so much, we'll learn all of the ins and outs of how to run that business as long as we're making good things happen out in the world. So Josh, hats off on, you know, values and, and, and core purpose. So I would, I would add one thing to that, that company. I would be asking them to give a definition of what, what making good things happens means. Means, yeah. Um, you know, Tony Robbins used to have this exercise he did at the beginning of all of his workshops back when he was Tony and not Anthony, um, which was back in the early 80s, by the way. And he would have us get in groups of eight or 10 people, sit around a table, and he would use the word picnic because we all supposedly know what picnic means. I write down the first 10 words that comes into our mind about the word picnic. And then we'd go through and everyone would read off their list and see how many words all eight of us had in common. It would usually be between somewhere between zero and one. Once in a while, we'd get up to two. So if you're not defining what your terms mean, nobody knows what you're talking about. I mean, it's a nice move above the, you know, having no values, but without a definition of what the value is, your people don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Love it, Josh. That's powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I guess, again, since my perspective is a little different than, than certainly Josh's. Uh, <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> so, so in our world, with working with advisors, the way we respond to this values-based discussion and how to implement that in company-wide 
is to have business coaches on your team of advisors. Because I believe, Josh, and you are an exception in so many ways, but you are an exception in that you are a business advisor, but you have this, this values-based approach, which I suspect you've done a lot of reading, you've done training, you've worked with business owners for 20 years to develop that. Well, that's not what most advisors, frankly, want to do. That's outside of their wheelhouse. They want to be helping owners develop a plan and execute a plan to do something, maybe deal with an issue, uh, and they would bring in other advisors like a business coach. I mean, BEI has a business coach uh, that we've hired and we work with, and the, uh, and they're very valuable. It's a very different discipline from what I'd call the basic professions, the lawyer, financial planner, CPA, and so on. It's, it's a different way of approaching a business. And I think it's very valuable. Uh, but in our world, we would tend not to try to train that, teach regular advisors that, because I think it, it's too involved. It, it's too important to know just a little bit about it. Uh, and I think, Michael, you do the same thing. You probably have had some training in what you're just talking about. Agreed. We call that the purposeful side of planning. Yeah. And there's two sides of money. There's technical and there's purposeful. Both are different and both are just as important. If you don't deal with both, the other side falls apart. So true. So true. Um, talking about, you know, one of the notes I'm looking at, you know, when we talk, Josh, but I'll take either one of your um, inputs on this. Why would you say business owners are typically not interested in exit planning, but always interested in, in increasing their business profits? Um, go ahead, Josh, go first. Well, for me, it's about um, seller's remorse. You know, for years, I thought I could help people avoid seller's remorse, which is, you know, in, we all have remorse as we move on when we sell our company, we lose our, you know, our social network, <clears throat> the phone stops ringing, all that kind of stuff. You know, when I was in my food service business, I always tell this story. I was one of the 10 most well-known people in the vending and food service industry. I was the education chairman of the National Vending Association. <clears throat> we probably taught 400, 500 vending companies how to run their companies better. The year I sold my business, the phone literally stopped ringing. I used to have five, six calls a week from people looking for information, asking for advice, stuff that really was good for my ego. Well, that completely disappeared. And it was a very lonely year, the year after I sold my vending company. I'm not unusual. I've never met a business owner who's left their business who hasn't had some form of seller's remorse. So if you have an advisor, that purposeful advisor, they can help you get through that transition. We call that passage is one of the four stages of transition. Going through that passage stage where you left what you have, you're trying to figure out what your new normal will be. And that passage period is really messy and really ugly and really often painful, but it's to be expected. And most people aren't prepared for it. So instead of, and they have this, this sort of gut feeling that there's something bad on the other side. So instead of doing something, they don't do anything. Yeah. And so again, we call that 
a deal killer. <laughs> right. If, if the owner realizes it before there's a definitive purchase agreement, they just disappear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, I think that's really important, Michael. To answer your question about exit planning versus wanting to grow the business, I would take I would not disagree with you, but I take maybe a different approach. I think uh, our surveys of business owners show that eighty percent of owners know they need to plan in order to exit successfully, but they just don't want to do it now. And so we have to figure out what that now is. Uh, that now usually is a problem that they have in their company or something they want to attain specific in their company. And that again gets back to why we do assessments at the very beginning of an engagement, because unless we address that, we're never going to get to exit planning. And usually our members don't do a complete exit plan, at least not at first. They address, they go through goals and resources and then they put that owner's concerns in that perspective. I'm having difficulty with a child in the business. My business is stagnant, it's not growing. Uh, my key employee just left and took half of the company with them. So we deal with those issues. And once we resolve those in the context of the owner's goals and resources, then we might move to the next step, the next, next challenge or we might do an exit plan. But in our world, doing a complete exit plan is not important so much as dealing with what the owner's concerns are. Gotcha. It's that whole making sure that, you know, the person has something to retire to, not retire from conversation, right? right. What, you know, it's interesting. One of the ways that we attack that in the, with the family-owned businesses is because that piece of legacy is pretty powerful. And with, with many of the family-owned businesses that we serve, what we've seen is that there's, there's a really gratitude to the community for helping them to get to where they got to. And so, you know, the way we may attack that is to, for the family to start a family foundation. And now, you know, what we, we take, you know, grandpa's the one who's, you know, moving on at this point selling the business and the next generation, whatever generation it is, is, is running the business. Um, but we want to put, you know, grandpa and grandma or whomever that, you know, is in that role in the position of the family, you know, running the family foundation and becoming an elder within the family and working with the grandkids and helping by utilizing philanthropy as the playground to, um, to start to develop the future leaders within the family. So you can work with the grandkids in philanthropy, which is another business and, and start developing those, you know, those, those leaders at a very young age. It's just kind of, that's how we complete that circle for the family owned business. I think that's a great idea. That's a great concept. I don't hear about that very much. So I, yeah, and, and that obviously takes a pretty successful business to do that with. That's generational, but nevertheless, I think it is a great topic to talk to the elder generation about, and it might remove some of their hesitation in transferring the balance of their ownership because they've yeah. got another project that's important. Um, and that's maybe another thing that uh, I may have learned something from Josh over the years, and that is. <laughs> Keep your business. But you know, exit planning used to be when do you want to leave? How much money do you want? Who do you want to transfer the business to? Which is 
you know, still critical, it's still key, but it's not what necessarily drives owners to exit or to start planning. It's these softer goals you were just talking about. What's my legacy? What's the culture? How do I benefit my community? How do I help all of the employees in my company? If we can address those concerns, the balance of the exit planning process is smoother and it might get them jump-started. And that is just a set of softer values that I don't remember learning about in law school. Right. You know, that didn't happen. Nor do they teach in the CFP program or CPA programs or any of that stuff. Now, you remember I was writing, I wrote a blog post in the New York Times, actually it was our friend um, out in the Midwest who is a big M&A guy. And it was on his, it was Kevin Short on his, one of his deals. And it was a very, very large distribution company, electrical distribution company in Utah. And there were $3 billion companies going after this firm. And they ended up selling to a wholly owned ESOP. And the reason they sell to the wholly owned ESOP versus the other people was a, they got a good price for it. But more importantly, their people were made 100% invested in the ESOP as part of the negotiation. And they were very concerned with taking care of their employees and making sure they were well taken care of. And they knew the ESOP was a far better choice just because of how ESOPs run and this particular ESOP ran. So they had a huge advantage. Not only did they have a tax advantage because they were running their company tax-free as an S-corp, but they also had a philosophical advantage because as an ESOP, they were philosophically aligned with what the selling owners wanted to accomplish for their people, not for themselves. Yep. They were going to be fine. They were getting two bucket loads of cash. So the real thing was now, what are we going to do for our people to make them feel honored and appreciated? Yep. It's very consistent with Michael is saying as well as looking at those aspirational goals. Yeah. 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 Josh, you taught me something when we were talking before and you uh, said, how do you identify a PERMA-5 and why it's so dangerous? And so (laughs) would you, you know, and I think that we're right at that point because we're just talking about those, you know, we're always, you know, putting this, teach us what a PERMA-5 is and why it's so dangerous. Well, when I first got into this business, I would ask a business owner, when do you want to leave your business? And if they were over 50 years old, I almost heard the word five years. And then I go back to that same business owner two years later and say, when do you want to leave your business? <clears throat> and they say five years. And three years after that, it was always five years. So I just dubbed that PERMA-5. And around 15 years ago, I finally figured out why it's PERMA-5. And the reason it's PERMA-5 is a business owner often strategically doesn't know how to accomplish what they want to accomplish, but they believe whatever it is they need to do will magically reveal itself and be fixed over the next five years. And unless they get some help to help them think that through, it's always going to be five years because they still don't know what to do. Yeah. So that's where PERMA5 came from. Sorry. So when I saw that question, Michael, that you sent, I thought, what in the heck is PERMA5? So I Googled it. It's a totally different thing. I thought it was some type of a, and it's a, it's a theory of happiness if you Google okay. PERMA5. And 
so, but that, what Josh mentioned, and I've seen, I'm sure you've seen it too, five years is like the exit time frame for most owners. And at one of our training sessions for advisors, I asked that question, why is it always five years? And somebody answered it, I thought was perfect. He said, well, five years is far enough away for owners to think they don't have to actually start doing planning yet, but it's close enough to think I'm really going to be able to leave in five years. So it's, it's this combination of, I can still procrastinate, but I do have a destination in mind. And then the next year it's five years. And we call that the rolling five-year exit. It's a, it's the perma five with a different name, different thing to it. Uh, By the way, perma five exists all over the place. It's not just business owners. Right. Of course. course. John, for the advisors that are listening to this show, because we do, I'm positive that there's a bunch of advisors that listen to this. How do they get in touch with your organization? Uh, They just go to our website, exitplanning.com. And yeah, request more information, whatever. And and I would tell you after all the time of, you know, talking with Josh through the years and now talking with you um, that if uh, an advisor's thinking about being able to help the, you know, business owners with exit planning, I would highly recommend that they reach out to you. Nice job. Thank you you for all the work you've done. Josh, how do people get a hold of you if they'd like to? Um, easiest way to just email me, jpatrick at stage2planning.com. That's the number two. Or you can just go to either of our websites, www.stage2planning.com or www.sustainablebusiness.co. And that's .co and not .com. I didn't forget the M. <laughs> Couldn't get the M. <laughs> uh, unless you wanted to pay a, an arm and a leg for it. Andrew, I, I don't it. think I could even get out for that. Some environmental group that has it. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you to the both of you for joining us today. This has been really informative and a great conversation. Again, my name is Michael Columbus. This has been the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. If I can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us. And thank you for joining us today. We'll Catch you next time. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.